0: Exodus chapter 13, Israel is coming out of slavery in Egypt, following the ten plagues and the first Passover, and now they're taking their first steps toward the promised land. This account should be very familiar to us, so we're just going to read uh, about six verses here and then start to get into the text. Exodus chapter 13, let's start in verse 17. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with them because he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you will carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord, was going to take, excuse me, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night. From before the people. You know, there are some times when we come to Scripture where we need to spend some time getting down into the background and the setting and the context so that we can understand it because the, the, the theme or the subject is so complex that it's hard to grasp and we need to, to really be drawn in. Last week was a good example of that type of study. Wasn't that a blessing last week? I don't, I don't say that because he's my father, um, although I wish I had half the mind that he has. I just know that I learned so much about world events and about prophecy, and it's amazing to see that the outer edges of the puzzle are already done, aren't they? And the picture's starting to develop in. We know Scripture has that depth, and when we study something like we studied last week, we have to spend a lot of time getting into the context so that we understand what's going on, because uh, it's very multifaceted and very subtle in a lot of ways. And it's not something we can just break down and say, well, if we just do these couple things this afternoon, we'll be good. So some, some studies are more complex. Other studies, other times we come to the Word, the text is familiar, and the theme is, is something that we're living in, and we just need to know what the Holy Spirit is teaching us through His Word so that we can begin to live in a more spiritually proactive and a spiritually fresh way. This is one of those studies where we hear from the Lord in a very practical way and His Word speaks straight to our heart. Now, I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. I don't know uh, where your heart is. In fact, even those of you that I know well may not even be letting on what's going on. Or maybe you don't even know. It really doesn't matter because the Lord knows what's in our hearts and minds. And how many of us know that he cares more about that than on the outer facade, what we do and what we try to project to other people. God knows what's going on in our hearts. So I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. I don't know if you're struggling or joyful. I don't know if you're thirsting for more of God's presence or you're resigning right in his presence. But I know he's led us to this series and he has led us to this study and I've wrestled with it in how, to, in how to really preach it because I wasn't planning on preaching this this morning. So we need to understand and hear from the Lord and ask him what he's teaching us today because I'm inadequate. I don't know how to teach what I'm going to teach. Uh, you never hear preachers say that do you. I, I don't know what I'm doing. But the Lord knows what he's doing and the Lord wants to teach us this morning. Amen? He wants to teach something to us. To me, to you. So let's ask Him, even though we've prayed a lot already, let's ask Him now to really teach us. Father, we ask you right now to open our hearts. Whatever we're dealing with this morning, whatever is on our minds, whatever we're needing in terms of direction, we ask you to teach us. Father, I am inadequate. I'm in the way. We pray that you would just remove me out of the way and that you by your Holy Spirit, would use your word to teach into our hearts and that we'd be receptive. And, Lord, we would not be able to walk out the same as we walked in. Guide and direct our study now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's no question that one of the biggest challenges of walking by faith, even as we've been studying these passages and these studies about the presence of God and how God's power works... There's no question that one of the biggest challenges is learning to be content in the way he works. Now, part of the personal and emotional conflict for us is that abiding in the presence of the Lord and listening to his word and yielding to his Holy Spirit doesn't always guarantee that we're going to have perfect understanding of what's going on. And it doesn't always guarantee that we are going to be taken down the path that we expected. Now granted, the older and more mature we get in our faith, we learn by our study of the Word and by listening to the Holy Spirit to discern what God's telling us. And we gain a greater understanding, hopefully, as we grow more mature in our faith, of why God does things the way He does. And we may even start to anticipate how He's going to work. But we are secure in trusting Him. But, But contentment and satisfaction... In times of trial and in times of difficulty or in times of refining, as somebody said to me this morning, I'm not really enjoying the refining process, and this is a mature brother, and I said, I know, it's hard. I mean, when God shapes us and changes us, that's a hard process, and it's an educational experience. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4.11, I've learned in all things to be content. It's not something that just happens by proxy. Oh, okay, now I'm good. We have to learn what it is to be confident and secure in the Lord. Now, we know that the Israelites always struggled with this. And what we see throughout the Old Testament is a metaphor for the resistance of self, that that self rises up against the Lord, self rises up against how God wants to shape and refine and lead us, and, and and it kind of stands against his lordship and his leadership. So the Israelites are a picture of that. But there are two distinct times in the Old Testament, one right as they start toward the promised land, and one as they get to the promised land, where God uses the same two natural resources to teach them about his help and his presence and his provision. Now, we're going to look briefly this morning at each one, and then we're going to finish over in Psalm 42 and draw some additional application. We've seen over the past few weeks that God's presence was manifested in many different ways throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 6, our first study, he was smoke in the temple. In our study in Genesis, he was the man who wrestled with Jacob. In 1 Kings 8, he was represented by a cloud. Here in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 21, we see that the presence of the Lord is represented by a pillar. It's a cloud that led them by the day, and it's a pillar of fire that led them by night. And verse 22, if you look at it, says that he didn't take, away it, take it away from them at any point. In other words, every day as they woke up, every day as they walked, every night as they walked, every night as they went to bed, God's presence was literally right before them. There was never a time where it was too cloudy and you couldn't discern it, or it was raining and the fire was extinguished, or it was too sunny and you just couldn't make it out. Every single day they walked, and every single day God's presence was before them. Now that's very important detail, because as you go back to verses 17 and 18, you see that God was leading them in a way that they neither expected nor maybe even appreciated. It says that God didn't take them through the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. Every time you study scripture, make sure you're looking at every word that the Spirit's giving you, because nothing is accidental. He doesn't just throw in that detail for, for kicks. He throws in that detail because it's absolutely important to the narrative, and because it greatly affected, even though it doesn't tell us how, it greatly affected how these people thought. He didn't take them by the way of the Philistines, even though it was near. If you have the map, would you put that up for me? This is the map of the Exodus route. Can you guys see that okay, more or less? All right, here's Egypt, right here's the Nile Delta. This line right here, that's the way of the Philistines. This is where the Philistines were, right here. Now, God says, I'm not taking you that way, even though the end goal is right here, okay? They're going to cross the Jordan River at Jericho right there. So you go from here to here. Shortest distance between two points is what, glass? A straight line, all right? So that makes the most sense, correct? God doesn't do that. He sends them way down here. There you go. Wait a second. That's Egypt. That's Canaan. Why are we not going that way? And don't you think, knowing the Israelites, don't you think they asked that question too? We know the map. We know that's the way to go. So why are we going way down here? See, this is a very important concept sometimes of how the Lord leads. It would have been much more direct to go along the Mediterranean coastline and to go up where they were going to be. This is now what what is then the land of the Philistines is now called the Gaza Strip. That's a a territory that's in dispute between the Jews and the Palestinians. But verse 17 tells us the Lord had a very specific reason for not taking them on that straight line. He knew that if they got into that land and they came into conflict because, thank you for keeping it up, because if they're in conflict right here and they see that the enemy is formidable and Egypt's right here, what do you think they're going to think? hey, we could just go back. That would be real simple. Rather than getting in all this mess and fighting with the Philistines, there's conflict. Why don't we just return back to Egypt? And if you look at the text in verse 17, that's exactly what God says. If you run into conflict, you're going to turn back to your former life. Now, we know that it took the Israelites a lot less than that to wish for Egypt, right? They got into the wilderness. They realized there was no water and that bread wasn't easily accessible, and this wasn't going to be easy. And what did they say? Moses, you're a cruddy leader. Moses, why did you bring us out in the wilderness to die? We would be better going back to Egypt. Do you remember the beautiful, lavish buffets of food that we had? Oh, the make-your-own-omelets. It was so wonderful. It was great. We had easy days. We'd sit around and watch TV. I mean, this is how diluted, really, their thinking is. Oh, it would be so much better to go back to Egypt. God says, I'm not going to allow them to get in that position where they're thinking that way. God knows our propensities, listen now, better than we do. He knows what's in here. He knows how we think. He knows how we rationalize. He knows how we justify. So he says, I'm not taking you that way. I'm taking you down by the Red Sea. It's an uncertain, unfamiliar, unexpected direction. And in taking them that way, he doesn't give them a definitive path or or a clear map or a clear expectation. He doesn't say, we're just going to go down here about 300 miles, we're going to take a left, we're going to go up on the other side, and this will allow you to avoid the Philistines. We're not even sure in verse 17 that he utters his thought out loud. It just says that that's what he thought. So as they realize they're not heading due east, they're heading due south, what are they thinking? And are they starting already to say, this isn't right? Notice what God does. Look at the text in verse 21. It says, even though he doesn't give them a definitive map, even though he doesn't give them a clear expectation, in verse 21 it says, but he went before them. Whether they believed that this was the best way to go, they had the security and satisfaction of the Lord's presence. And without that, they would have been lost. You may be frustrated this morning. Again, I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. You may be frustrated at at God's direction. You may feel impatient at God's direction. You may be clueless about why God is doing what he's doing or allowing what he's allowing. But let me tell you this morning, the alternative is worse. In one way they could go, they would face an enemy that was powerful and equipped. They were not equipped coming out of slavery to take on anybody. Or God could direct them into the wilderness, which was harsh and would kill them, except, verse 21, the Lord was helping them. And for some reason, he wanted them in the wilderness. Let me give you the first spiritual principle this morning. The first spiritual principle is that God often guides us in seemingly indirect ways to get us to his direct goal. God sometimes leads us in seemingly indirect ways to get us to his greater purpose. Often the best direction for our lives is the one that seems unexpected and illogical. They had to be asking, why are we not going on a straight line? Why are we not going straight toward Canaan? God just delivered us from Egypt to take us to the promised land. Why are we not going that way? Now, they may have been able to come to the same conclusions and rationalize and say, well, yeah, the Philistines are pretty strong and we're not really ready to fight them. but And that, that might have satisfied them for a while. But after a short time, they're going to be saying, why are we going down to the Red Sea? And then, here's the second crisis. All of a sudden, they realize, this is in chapter 14, just skim over it, that as they're walking, uh uh-oh, the Egyptians are suddenly chasing them. All of a sudden, they're not alone on the path. And what they fail to realize in the immediate term is, is that, hey, God's with us, God's leading us, God's directing us. Look at that pillar. It's right there. He's not going to leave us because we're in a crisis. In fact, what we're going to see is the Lord repositions himself to provide increased help. Look over at chapter 14 and verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, they looked, and the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. They're scared out of their minds. That's the vernacular here. They're going crazy. They're in a panic. They're they're just overwhelmed. And even though they cry out to the Lord, they also start to accuse Moses. Moses, why would you bring us out in the wilderness to die? And they start to immediately say, Egypt would have been better than this. But Moses had not led them there. The Lord had. Instead of taking a left, they took a right and they went into the wilderness. And God said, this is why. So even as they're blaming Moses vicariously, they're blaming the Lord. You know, we do that. Well, I don't know why those people did that, or I don't know why the situation was like this, or I don't know why. Listen, in doing that, there's, there's a subtle blame to, well, because they did that, the Lord must have done that. The Lord does direct our paths. All they had to do was look up every day, and what would they see? that huge pillar that was a cloud, and that huge pillar that was a fire, all they had to do was look up and say, God is with us. And wherever we go and wherever we camp, He's there. But notice, God doesn't just say, well, I'm here, what are you worried about? He goes a step further. Look at verses 19 and 20. The angel of God, who had been going for the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other at night. As the Egyptians marched toward them, the pillar moves around. Think how dramatic this was. Picture this in your head this huge pillar cloud that's been leading two million people, all of a sudden starts to move. And it comes around behind and stands between them and the Egyptians. It blocks the Egyptians from attacking and it stays there all night. Now, there are two ways to look at that. One way is, see, the Lord knows what he's doing. We don't need him before us right now. We need him behind us to block us. Psalm 23, 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life. Sometimes the Lord repositions himself behind. Or you could say, See, there's evidence that God doesn't want to help. See, now we're out here on our own. Now we're having to figure out our own path. Because God was leading us, but now he's not leading us anymore. He moved. Can you imagine that sometimes we think that way? Have you ever been in a situation and a time of difficulty where it seemed to you like the Lord left for a while? And you're wondering why he abandoned you and where, where he went and, and why he's not helping you anymore and why when you pray you're not getting any clear direction. Listen, there are some times where God is just repositioning himself so that you'll be more secure in his provision. The people that walked by faith at this point saw that cloud move and they said, aha, that's what God's doing. God is helping us and protecting us. Now here's what the enemy does. Listen now very carefully. The enemy lies to us and he says, God is not faithful. And he is indifferent about giving you clear direction and he doesn't really care. Let me tell you this morning, don't ever fall into that assumption. God's ways are not our ways. They're much better. And when God wants to reposition himself, he is doing it to protect us and to guard us and to comfort us and to guide us so that we won't have to do what we always do, which is worry and fear. God says, I don't need to be before you right now. I'm going to move around to the back. And even more profound, look at verse 20. That cloud stood dark on the Egyptian side, but on the Israeli side, it was light. It doesn't say it was a pillar of fire on their side. It just says the cloud was part of the darkness, but on the Israeli side, it was light. Why? Because God wanted to show them what he was about to do. He wanted them to witness the fact that his wind was going to start to blow, and the sea that stood before them was going to start to divide, and the dry ground was going to appear on the sea floor of the Red Sea, and they were going to start to walk. This is not some shallow ditch that they're crossing. Apparently, it took more than 15 seconds. The Ten Commandments movie were so jaded by that, where Moses stands and. Yeah, right? Everybody say, right? It takes like 15, 20 seconds of cinema magic to change the way. Forget all that, okay? This took all night. The waters start to part, that cloud standing between, and it's light on their side and dark on the others, and the Egyptians are clueless about what's going on. But Israel can see, Israel can see that God is sending a wind and the waters are dividing, and they see dry ground. They don't see mud. And they start to walk. Here's what's even more powerful. Look at verse 24. It says, while this is going on, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army through the pillar of fire and cloud. I love that thought. It means that God's presence is never impersonal and mechanical. We have made the Lord mechanical we have made the lord impersonal everything now is digital everything's quick everything's easy as my father said last week now catholics can even confess on their ipads god now is just another machine but it says god looked down on the egyptians On one side, he's watching his children. He's watching how his children are starting to, at first timidly, but then confidently walk through the water that he's holding up with the palms of his hand. And he's got his hand on them, guiding them through to get to the place where they need to go. He's moving them through the situation that just minutes before had been an obstacle, and now is their pathway to freedom. Here the water is a symbol for his provision. What could have hindered them now becomes the catalyst for their deliverance. And on the other side, he's looking down at Egypt. He's staring at the enemy of his people, and he says, No, you're not allowed to advance. I'm about to bring judgment on you. Think about that now in terms of your daily walk and the enemy's attack against you. God doesn't sit in heaven and say, do your best. It's okay. I'm here when you need me. He says, with one hand, I'm going to guide you. And with another hand, I'm going to stop the enemy. It's all personal here. The water now is going to be a different picture for the Egyptians. For the Israelites, it was an obstacle that became a path of deliverance. For the Egyptians... It's going to be the place of God's judgment. Now, we know the story. We know that Israel gets through, that Egypt is destroyed by the waters that crashed on on them, and Israel, at the end of chapter 14, rejoices and praises God. And chapter 15 is all a song of praise. But, But there's still a problem in their minds. Now that they're through the Red Sea, they are really in the wilderness. If you could back up one slide for me. Thank you, George, for whoever's running it back there, Tom. That's what the wilderness looked like. I know it looks like, you know, Central Park. It's foreboding and dry and arid. You don't see a single tree there. That's the Egyptian wilderness. So while the joy of the Red Sea is before them, that joy, Scripture tells us, In chapter 15 and verse 21, that joy only lasts three days. They had seen a spectacular, miraculous event. They had seen God stay and then destroy the enemy. They had seen their feet walk through on dry ground. They had seen themselves get to the other side. But three days later, there's no water. And all of a sudden, they start to gripe about their location And about God's guidance. Because they're there now. You know, the wilderness is designed to produce three spiritual characteristics in us. It is designed to produce courage. It's designed to produce confidence. And it's designed to produce conviction. The wilderness produces courage because of God's presence and his sufficiency. It produces confidence because of his promises and his power and it produces conviction out of the first two. Israel had been so spiritually indifferent for so long, but instead of them taking, instead of God taking them on the easy path with short-term difficulty, he takes them on the longer path that's designed to breed deep conviction. That is going to happen in your life. It has happened in my life many times, and I anticipate it will happen many more times. God doesn't always take us on the path of least resistance. In fact, the path of least resistance is usually the path where we don't learn. It's when he takes us on the longer, drier, more arid path that he says, this is where your conviction is really going to come out. This is where I'm going to determine and see what you're really made of. The Israelites needed to go to the desert because they needed to get serious about their faith and stop living for themselves. And the only way he was going to be able to do that and accomplish that was by taking them on the difficult, unexpected path. Now maybe you're here this morning, and you are on a wilderness path. And maybe you resent the Lord for allowing it. Or maybe you're there, and you know why you're there, but you're resisting the changes that he's trying to make in your life. That's exactly what Israel tried to do, and it got them 40 years of wandering in circles. Because they didn't make the connection. Now, I doubt that God's going to make us wander for 40 years. Some people he has. But when you look at your life, do you say, I am making spiritual progress? Growth and maturation are taking place every day. God may have you in the wilderness right now, and it's not because he's punishing you, it's because he wants to solidify and strengthen your convictions. And often he starts that by bringing us to the water, to obstacles that we seem we can't overcome, and we can't. There's something that's so significant that it stands in our way But it's the place where God says, I want to teach you how sufficient I am. Now, keeping that thought in mind, go over some pages to Joshua chapter 3. Because there's another passage here that sets up the same way as Exodus 13 does. In fact, the situation is almost identical. The only difference is 40 years have passed. Most of Israel, almost all of them, have died in the wilderness Now they're not being pursued on their way out of Egypt. Now they're being blessed on their way into the promised land. This time, the crisis is that Moses has died. There's a new generation of people. people, There's a new leader for the first time. And God calls Joshua to take them into Canaan. And it is safe to assume that the people are just a little bit anxious about this. That there's some level of uncertainty and angst about their future, because none of them has the, the, the perspective of years of spiritual maturity. They've seen very few people that have been faithful to the Lord as they have grown up, because remember, at this point, everybody except for two is less than 40 years old. The only two men that they have seen really be faithful to God are Joshua and Caleb, Even Moses, at the end of his life, has hit the rock twice and fallen into some some discipline from the Lord and not been allowed to lead them into the promised land. He goes up to the Mount Nebo and dies. So they have very little spiritual perspective. They have very little background. And they're wondering, I think at this point, if the Lord's really going to keep his word. Because remember, they come from a long line of selfish, complaining, fearful people. So again, as they come to the point of crossing over the Jordan, there's doubt and there's uncertainty. And again, there's a body of water standing in their way. For their parents, it was the Red Sea. Now it's a little smaller. It's the Jordan River. If you have that picture, I'm sorry, I'm kind of... Uh, oh, I never sent you that picture. Sorry, because my computer got a virus in the middle of the night. That was a joyful experience. Part of the spiritual warfare of this weekend. So the Jordan River, just picture it in your mind now, a river about this wide, trees on both sides. Everybody got that? Good. Now there's a river standing between them. And instead of a pillar this time, instead of a big cloud and a big fireball that's leading them, now God is working in a more personal, accessible way. He had filled the tabernacle in the wilderness with his presence, and now he's represented, look at the passage by the Ark of the Covenant, verse 6. And as His presence is represented by the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the holy place, which was where He would come down and sit on the mercy seat and dispense justice and mercy to His people, now they are carrying the Ark as they prepare to go. And as they take this next step, look at what the Lord tells them. Joshua chapter 3, verse 5. Joshua said to the people, "'Consecrate yourselves.'" Every time God leads, we need to be prepared by sanctifying our lives because God's not going to lead us when we're dirty. So the first thing he says before he tells them what to do is, prepare yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priest saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I've been with Moses, I've been with you. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you come to the Jordan, excuse me, the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you will stand still in the Jordan. First time, they're at the edge of the wilderness, and they have a body of water. Now they're at the edge of the promised land, and there's a body of water. And what's fascinating about this account, in contrast to the Red Sea, is that instead of unexpectedly taking them into an unfamiliar place to refine them, now God is very, very specific in how he's going to fulfill his covenant. In chapter 3, just skim. In chapter 3, he provides thorough details about the right way to enter into the land, that the priests are supposed to go first with the ark, and stand in the middle of the dry riverbed and let the people walk by. (coughs) In chapter 4, he tells them to set up a memorial on the other side and to put stones representing each tribe. In chapter 5, he says all the men need to be circumcised. In chapter 6, he gives them detailed instructions on how to conquer Jericho. What he is doing here is nothing like the Red Sea, which is where he just said, watch what I'm going to do. I'm not going to give you details. I'm not going to tell you why we're taking a right instead of a left. You just watch what I'm going to do and you follow my cloud. Then it was into the unknown where he's going to provide everything they need. But notice now he's giving them specificity. Second spiritual principle. Second spiritual principle is that when the Lord leads and his guidance is clear, move forward with courage and courage. And confidence, and don't question why he's being specific. That's a long sentence. When God's leading and guidance is clear, move forward with courage and confidence, and don't stand around and wonder why he's being more specific. But in that, make sure that you keep following him. Because as dissimilar as the two situations are, what a huge sea and moving into the unknown. Now a tiny river where they know exactly where they're going. Notice the one detail that's exactly the same. Look at verse 6. It says, the ark, which was the presence of the Lord, went before them. The river stood in their way, but he led them into the edge of the water, and it did exactly what the Red Sea had done. The water stacked up. In this case, the water moves back seven miles. God deals with it in exactly the same way. Not because he's trying to be cute and clever, not because they're too dumb to get the message, but because he wants them to understand that I go first. So the priests who are carrying the ark get to the edge of the water, kind of look at each other. Take that step in, and all of a sudden, it's dry ground. And they walk out, and they stand in the middle of the riverbed. Let's imagine that this is as wide as the Jordan, because it's about this wide in most areas. And they stand. While millions of people walk across, and every single one of those people has to go by the presence of the Lord. Every one of those people... Can't miss it. This is not an all-night journey. This is 30, 40 yards. And they cannot miss the children as they walk by. Mommy, what's going on? We're going into our new land. What are the priests doing? They're standing there with the ark. The ark's the covenant. The ark is the presence of the Lord. That was in the holy place. Can you believe we get to see it? Can you imagine the conversations that are going on. Come on, honey. Come on. Where's the water, mommy? God's delivering us. All the adults who maybe had leaned, because they were young, toward arrogance and self-sufficiency, every one of them walked by that ark. And the priests stood still with the presence of the Lord. They don't know what to expect. They don't know what awaits them on the other side. They're moving into a land where the people aren't particularly keen on being kicked out. But the lesson of conviction is, I will lead you, and I will bless you, and you will follow. Here's the difference between the Red Sea and this. When the people get into the promised land, they remain faithful. Whereas three days after the Red Sea closed up, the people are saying, Oh, I wish we could go back. Oh, this is miserable. They get to the other side, and Joshua says, Go get 12 huge rocks out of the riverbed. And they lug them across as the priests are still standing there, and the people have cleared. And they set them up. And they build a memorial. And they say, This is what God's done. This is how God has worked. And by the time they get to Jericho in chapter 6, they're following the Lord without question, even though the directions on how to conquer the city are odd at best. And when the time comes to take the city, they don't back down. There's no uncertainty or questioning or rebellion like there have been in Sinai. There's just complete obedience and complete victory. In this wilderness, the courage and the confidence are there because their convictions are stronger. Everything about this is just as amazing as it had been at the Red Sea. The only difference is their demeanor. God's presence and His power are no different in this story. In fact, it's a repetition of what happened before. His power, we would even say, was expressed more dramatically at the Red Sea. But this time, the response is different. And the people say, praise the Lord, and they mean it. And as God says, move into the land, move into this new wilderness, they move in, and they get to Jericho, and God says, walk around the city for seven days. They say, fine, we'll do that. And they blow the trumpets, and the city falls. This time, the conviction is different, even though the circumstances are exactly the same. Now, let's look. Quickly, my time's done. One more passage, Psalm 42. Let's just touch on it, we'll pray. Psalm chapter 42. David writes this 400 years after Joshua and the people crossed the Jordan River. And already as we read this, we're going to see a change in understanding about the presence of the Lord. He's not a gigantic pillar now. He's not a golden box. We know that he wasn't exactly those things. He was just residing in those things. But now, David is going to call him by a different name. Look at Psalm 42.1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. When they say to me all day long, where's your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with a throng and lead them in procession, the house of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul's in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan. And the peaks of Hermon and Mount Nazar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves are rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. David says, look, it's changed. God is not now a cloud. He's not residing on this box. He now is the living God. He's always been the living God but now I understand him in a more personal way. And he brings up that metaphor of water. (coughs) He says, I'm thirsting to be in God's presence. I want to be near him. I remember the times when I went to the house of the Lord, and then he uses a phrase that should catch our attention, and I pray will encourage us at the end of verse 5. He says, hope in God, for I will again praise him for the help Of his presence. How many of us know this morning that when God is presence, there is help? When God is near us, there is help. And here's the interesting thing, and I know I've gone long, but here's the interesting thing about the last four words of that. The word presence now literally means face, it literally means to to be before their face. And the word help here means salvation, deliverance, and victory. It's the Hebrew word Yeshua. Did you get it? Yeshua is the word for Joshua. We just studied him. And Yeshua in the Greek, tell me, Jesus. David is giving us an advanced picture here. 900 years before Christ, he says, this is how God is going to bring his presence to the people Face to face, he's going to come down in the person and work of Jesus Christ, Yeshua, who will be our Savior, Deliverer, and the one who will give us eternal victory. Somebody say amen. That's this right here. It's this table. The presence of God, our Yeshua, the one who will give us help. And just as Joshua led the people to a new life, the scripture says that Jesus has given us a new and living way, secured by His sacrifice forever, sealed by His promise and by His Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 5 says, He sanctifies the church, having cleansed it by the washing of the water through His word that He might present us spotless. Romans says that now that He's freed us from that bondage, His Spirit indwells us. So listen, His presence is always with us. David says, oh, I remember the Jordan. Oh, I remember the land of the Jordan. I think that's a metaphor back to Joshua 3. He says, the sound of the waterfalls. The water metaphor again here. Your breakers and your raves have rolled over me. He says, the Lord commands his loving kindness in the daytime. His song in the night. Think about Israel. Day by day, following the cloud. Night by night, following the pillar. They knew his loving kindness They knew his direction because he is the living God. And how much stronger does our conviction get knowing that he is with us? He commands his loving kindness day after day after day. Third principle and I'm done. Because God's presence is always with us, we can have complete joy and confidence to follow his leading. Because God's presence is always with us, we can have complete joy and confidence to follow his leading. But we must continue to hunger and thirst for his presence and his power. Come on, Christian, now don't get dull. Don't say, well, God's always with me and he saved me and I've got my fire insurance, I'm going to heaven and everything's great. No, David says, I want to thirst more for that, not because God's inadequate or because he's distant, but because our propensity is to wander away, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Oh, Christian, you know that's true. The water may be an obstacle or it may be a pathway. The wilderness may be a place of refining or a place of new opportunities. The one constant is that the Lord has to go before us. Don't miss that. This is very simple this morning. The Lord has to go before us because our ego is so strong and our self-sufficiency has such an appeal to us. And even as we mature as believers, the deception of the enemy is to convince us that we can be spiritual teenagers. That we can do our own thing. That we've learned enough now. We know better. We'll take it from here. Lord, you're great but we've got it. Listen, that's the constant temptation, and we have to say, absolutely not. The only way I'm going to move forward is if the Lord goes before me. Listen, I am a firm believer. It was funny to me earlier when Randy said, those of you who have been with us for a long time, we're 15 weeks old. Some of you are grizzled veterans all four months. But listen, I wouldn't be here this morning if I didn't believe God had huge plans for us. But let's make sure we don't get ahead of ourselves. We're starting Bible studies and ministries, and we're even looking at buildings. That's great. It's wonderful. Let's keep doing that. But let's be careful because there are many gifted and experienced believers in this group. Let's make sure that we're careful not to get ahead of the Lord. Because if he doesn't lead us, we're toast. I mean, we are just toast. Let's make sure that we set the Lord always before us. Psalm 16, 8. Because when he is our right hand, we will not be moved. Believer, hear that this morning. Church, hear that this morning. I'm not picking. I'm trying to encourage. The Lord must go before us. And when he does, whether it's wilderness or promised land, we will never, ever be disappointed, will we? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your amazing sufficiency, your perfect leading, Lord, forgive us when we try to get too smart for our own good, and think that we can go ahead of you, and that you can just take a position behind us and just follow us. We want to set you before us at all times, and we ask you, because we can't do that work, we have to ask you, go before us. Go before us in our lives, go before us in our marriages. Go before us in our raising of our children. Go before us in our work. Go before us in our ministry. Go before us as a church. Go before us, we ask. We can't demand it. We just ask it. Go before us. Lord, we will follow you. And Father, I pray that we would never question, never doubt, never fear, because you have proven you are always sufficient. We thank you this morning that we're not following a cloud or not following a box. We are having you residing in us, the living God. Your spirit indwells us, and we praise you for that. Now, Lord, we look to you to guide and direct us. Keep us humble. Keep us broken before you. But, Lord, fill us with that courage and that confidence based on our conviction that we know you and we love you. Lord, do mighty works in our midst so that you would be glorified and honored. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you who have been around Harbor Rock for a while, you know that I love to sing hymns. So let's stand. We're going to close with a hymn. And uh, it's just a song of praise to our God. Praise to the Lord. The Almighty, the King of Creation.